If you'd like to turn in your Bibles tonight to the first chapter of Genesis, the very beginning once more. It'll take us a, a little bit to get through these opening chapters. I, once the narrative starts flowing, you get past Genesis divided up into about three sections. Once you get past the first section, it should move along a little better. But here we need to slow down and focus. One of my um, one of my favorite things to do is to um, <clears throat> listen to stand-up or watch stand-up comedians. One of my favorite of all time uh, still to this day is a guy named Stephen Wright. Have any of you ever heard of him? Stephen Wright is very deadpan, monotone, um, mostly one-liners, doesn't tell a lot of stories at all, just very cerebral, completely deadpan, like I said. He, he's, you probably, if, you've heard, if you have heard his voice, uh, and if you saw him, you'd say, oh, that's who the, the pastor was talking about. But uh, he said this once, again, just his, his one-liners. And he said, could you imagine how much different phones would look if your mouth was nowhere near your ears? It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. The, the human body just makes sense. It just makes sense, at least as far as its construction. I mean, women can feed and nourish their newborn babies. We have thumbs, right? We can open things. Our, our skin has layers, right? It protects itself. It, uh, did you know when, when you, you ever experienced that when you lay in a bath or in a pool for too long or and you're in water for too long and the inside of your fingertips wrinkle? That's the sign. That's your body reminding you that you have an intact nervous system and it's adjusting to its environment so that you can grip things when you're underwater because it's more slippery. It's, it's, it's amazing. Something amazing happens on day six in Genesis one. Something amazing is happening in this text up to this point. And even, again, even in Hebrew, the structure of the grammar is telling you that something amazing is happening. Up to this point, we've had third person singular verbs, right? God said, let this happen. And it does, right? It's, it's all been in that same sequence or structure that we talked about time command execution assessment time remember that structure the structure and sequence once we get to the middle or the second part of day six however where we are tonight is entirely different entirely different god uses the most words he uses in all of creation on day six there is an announcement then there's a command a report an action described an evaluation another announcement Decision and purpose, action and purpose, blessing and purpose, provision of food, a report, and then a temporal framework before day seven comes. Day six is presented structurally as the climax then, as the pinnacle of God's creating work. God creates mankind, he creates human beings at the top of a majestic, upward-moving, developing progression. God created mankind uniquely in his image and after his likeness to rule over his creation in a covenant relationship with him as a son to prepare for the coming of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this night. I thank you for those that have come this evening. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Father, help us think clearly. Help us think biblically in a Christ-centered way about this text. Please watch over me and help me speak tonight, Father. Keep me focused. Keep me grounded and centered. And watch over everyone who hears and help them to do so as you would have us here. And I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
first part of verse 26 here. Then God said, so you can see it. You can see it in English. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is, there's, there's a break from a pattern here. God uses language here he's not yet used in creation. He doesn't say, let the earth bring forth living creatures. He doesn't say that again, or a different kind of living creature. Instead, he says, let us make man. The normal flow is interrupted here. God is highlighting for us in the text the fact that this is the pinnacle of his creation, the special importance of human beings. And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, who is God talking to? There are several theories, as you can imagine. Some of them are better than others. Uh, I, I think that now, mainly, we kind of in our modern context just kind of default to this being Trinity, right? We just default to that. It's, it's a Trinitarian concept. God is talking to himself, and God is three in one, so this is clearly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It isn't that that's not the case, okay? So let me let me start there. It's not that that is not the case, but we have to be mindful of the original audience here before we settle dogmatically on a conclusion if the audience and i think it was if the audience is the wilderness generation on the edge of the promised land you have to remember something trinity was a concept that would have been completely foreign to their minds okay it's not something they had been taught or, or even would have thought to consider they would in other words the original recipients of genesis the original readers would not have read us and thought oh right god is three in one talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know that Moses would have understood that completely where he was. He, he, he may have. I mean, God talked to him as he talked to a friend. So there may be things Moses knew that we don't even know Moses knew. But not, again, it, it's, I don't know that Moses would have thought that. The audience certainly wouldn't have thought that. And again, not necessarily because that isn't the case. But for them, it wouldn't have been the case. They, they didn't know that yet. They hadn't even been told that yet. They most likely would have read us and saw God speaking in a kind of like a majestic plural, right? It's it's God let us, as though God had a court, if you will, a glorious company around him. We don't know if they would have been thinking of that as angels yet or not. And again, we don't know that that's what they're thinking at all. It just goes along. That, that would go, the majestic plural idea would go along with the concept of a deity in the culture and literature of that time. But the one true God is being distinguished in that sentence from the gods of the surrounding cultures of that time. No question. Because if you look there in the text, even though he says, let us, it's God alone who does the creating in verse 27. So that would have been a powerful point to make to the original audience. God does, in other words, what it would have said is he is majestic, but he doesn't work like through lower gods on a totem pole. There's not a pecking order. If he says, let us make man in his own image, and then he does the creating, he alone is God. It would have blown, it would have been language that would have been so majestic, it would have awed them, right? So, so it's, it's like the language of the time. They can relate to it, but it's so other, right? That, that God is, is, is showing himself as so majestic. He did the creating. And then later on, of course, in Isaiah 40, 14, that text denies that God consults with anyone, whether human or heavenly, in the creation or the administration of the world. But that information had not yet been revealed to them. 
I do think, I do think, because again, we have the benefit of the rest of scripture, that God is speaking to himself here as Trinity, namely to the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think that's who he's talking to. Think about chapter 1, verse 2. Who, who can we presume is also still present here? Who has been with him in creation? The Holy Spirit. He had been there in the beginning, hovering over the face of the waters. But also remember, who is the agent of God's creation? The word through which God creates is a person, Jesus Christ himself. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. John 1, 1 through 5. I do think that's the ultimate meaning of us here. I think the triune God is creating. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. This is said of no other thing, no other creature in all creation. Only human beings are created in the image and after the likeness of God. All the other creatures were created according to their own kind. You remember that? What we human beings, we are according to his kind, God's kind. In other words, there is a precedent for a living being, right? There is already a kind of that, and that's God. Not that God was human, not at all, but that being made in his image means something for humans to image already existed, right? There was no precedent for the earth. There was no precedent for animals and produce, etc. God had to create that kind out of nothing. But with man, he creates an image of himself, that which already was. This is one of the greatest questions in all of scripture. It really is. What does it mean to be made in the image of God after his likeness? Now, we spend the bulk of our time here tonight I would like to propose that the meaning not only has to come from the text itself, first of all, but since it is the biblical text that we're talking about, if it's a biblical text, then it serves the point of the creation account in all of Scripture, which is to testify to Christ. Now, let me say this. It would not make sense and would probably bore you to tears if I went through all the Hebrew grammatical linguistic issues that that point us towards a meaning in the text. I'm not saying that to try to sound really smart. That's my job, right? I, I have to study those things. So that, that's not the point of it. It's that I'm going to spare you most of those details because there are so many. In order to do it justice, once we started, we have to finish it. And we, it would be a grammar lesson all night. I, I doubt that that's what you're here for, right? I doubt that that would be all that interesting. Uh, so I'll spare you the details in the sermon of the process I went through to arrive at an answer. But if you are interested in all that kind of detail, that's something you like to study uh, in depth, the grammar, the linguistics, all those things. If you wanted, I would absolutely provide you later with the resources and the books that I use to study. That's no problem. So if that is something you want to do, let me know, and I would be more than happy to provide that. For the sake of preaching, however, let me give some of the background information, tell you what I think this means, why I think that, and then why it matters, okay? Um, the normal or traditional view is that being made in the image of God means simply that we share certain qualities with our creator, right? We're made in his image, so we're like him. Um, since God is invisible, we don't resemble him physically per se, but we resemble him in terms of things like morality, personality, reason, spirituality, etc. right? We're somehow like him. He creates things. We create things, right? We're made in his image. 
I, I think there's more to it than that. I think more is going on here. Quickly, one of the problems with that take on it, uh, not, again, not that it's heretical, it isn't. It isn't blasphemous, it isn't, not that at all. One of the problems with that kind of, that, that take on it, though, is that it didn't originate inside the church. That didn't come from within the Christian church. You can actually trace that to a guy named Philo of Alexandria, who lived, uh, he was a Jewish philosopher, he lived between 30 BC and 45 AD. That was his explanation philosophically of what it meant to be made in the image of God, and it just stuck. The main issue with it, however, is that that conclusion, that we're simply like him in some way, uh, it is not the result of a grammatical and historical interpretation of the passage. Okay, that it's not coming out of the text; it's being imposed on it, like it's it's guesswork. I think that's that's what it means. Uh, it's, it's based largely on a kind of reasoning from systematic theology, right? With our categories: God, doctrine of God, doctrine of man. And if God is like this and man is like this, um, what would it mean to be made in His image? You see, that's not that that's bad; it's that it isn't coming out of the text. It's, it's we create categories and then we impose them on it. That can get dangerous. Right, it, it is dangerous to do that, but um, we have to wrestle with the text, though. You, you have to get your meaning from the text, and we have to respect the intended meaning for the original audience. How would they have read image in terms of ancient Near Eastern culture and language when they read it? We're made in the image after His likeness. How would they have taken that? For one thing, image almost always referred to a physical statue, a physical statue. The term image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the 15th century BC when this, when Genesis was written would have communicated two main ideas the minute you saw it. The minute they saw the image of God, rulership and sonship. They would have seen that right away. And that was a, a very prevalent phrase in their setting. A king was considered the image of God. You remember where the Israelites were before the Exodus? Where they were in Egypt? A king was considered the image of God, of a God, because he had a unique relationship to a deity as the son of that deity, and a unique relationship to the world as a ruler on behalf of that deity. That that was definitely the case in Egypt where they were in bondage. That was exactly how the Egyptian people viewed Pharaoh. So unless the biblical text clearly distinguishes this meaning from the surrounding culture, and it will do that, we should assume that the meaning in the biblical text is identical to it or at least similar, right? Because it came to an audience before it came to us. The Bible has many similarities in its narratives and accounts to the surrounding literature during the times it was being written, of course it does, right? Of course it does. God's people and the authors of the biblical text were a part of these cultures and time periods. So they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a part of them, not as a citizen of today, but as a citizen then. So one of the reasons for the writing of Scripture is to distinguish how the one true God is so different from all the others, right? For example, there are there were temples... All throughout the ancient Near East when the temple in Israel was built. And they had something like a holy of holies. All of them did. So the same thing is happening in the creation of the temple 
but something radically different is happening. For, for example, at the center of those man-made temples are the keys to the magic through which you can gain the um, approval or appease the deity. That's what was at the center, the Holy of Holies, if you will, and all these other temples. Do you remember what's at the center of God's temple? The Ten Commandments. God saying, I will determine how you come close to me, right? I will determine all the truth. So Genesis was written into a certain culture with a certain language, but it's also telling the story of the one true God that created the universe and all things. So we can respect the similarities and the markers while still seeking to understand the specific unique details God was revealing to tell his story, all right? So Adam, Adam, that's the generic term for mankind. Given the normal meanings of image and likeness in the cultural and linguistic settings of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, likeness was used in Genesis 1.26 to specify a relationship between God and humans in a way that lets us see Adam as the son of God, while image describes a relationship between God and humans in a way that lets us see Adam as a servant king for God. Both terms specify this divine human relationship, but likeness focuses on the human being in relation to God, while image focuses on the human being in relation to the world. Being made in the image of God involves a covenant relationship between God and humans on one hand and between humans and the world on the other. God created mankind in his image and after his likeness in order to rule over his creation in a covenant relationship with him as a son and in a covenant relationship with the world as a ruling regent, if you will, on his behalf. That's what we'll see immediately in verse 26 and following. So being made in the image of God is a divine human relationship that has two dimensions to it, vertical and horizontal. A covenant relationship with God and humans, that's the sonship part, obedience, and a covenant relationship between humans and the earth, that's the rulership part, servant kingship. Man is the divine image. That was God's intention for creating man as both a servant king and a son of God. Mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of while having a covenant relationship with God on the one hand and with the earth on the other. God means to establish his rule on this earth he has created by means of a covenant relationship with human beings. We're going to see that even after the fall. Throughout Genesis and following, God's plan for mankind has never changed. It's never changed. The question that slaps us in the face after the fall is, well, who's going to fulfill the design then? Right? For mankind, the purpose for which mankind was created, who's going to do it now? Who's going to be able to do it now? Who will perfectly obey God as a son and never fail? Who's sufficient to successfully rule over creation and not destroy it? Well, I tell you his name, but you already know it. Interpreting image and likeness as terms that describe a kingdom through covenant relationship, a plan established on God's promises, is confirmed by both the context and interpretation of Genesis 1. It's found later in the Old Testament. The term likeness 
indicates that Adam, Adam, has a special relationship to God like that of a father and son. I want you to watch this. Flip over to Genesis 5. It's clearly implied here. And let me read verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Okay, do you see the repetition here, right? It's, it's very clear. God puts the divine creation of Adam in the image and likeness of God, right on top of the human creation of Seth in the image and likeness of Adam. Just a few chapters later, what is implied there is the transmission of the image of God through the genealogical line of mankind because image refers to sonship. Okay, That's why it reads that way. That's primarily what it means that we're made in his image and likeness. Luke 3.38 interprets the likeness of God in Genesis to show that Adam is the son of God, right? Israel inherits the role of Adam and Eve and is specifically called the son of God in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. When Israel sings at the sea in Exodus 15, 17, they're pictured there as a new Adam entering the promised land as though it's a new Eden. And then the divine sonship zeroes its focus in specifically on the king in God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15, what was true of the son, the nation, will now be fulfilled specifically and solely by her king. As time progresses and God zeroes or, or whittles the focus down to one person. We were meant to rule as sons because we were made in the divine image. That's what God, our creator, our father does. We are according to his kind. And again, it's not only important to compare the biblical text with other contemporary documents of its time, but when we need to, and we do often, to contrast it also. In Egypt, only the king was the image of God. In the Bible, all human beings bear the image of God. So imagine reading that as a slave, a former slave, that you were made in the image of God. So this covenant relationship with God and man is not restricted to the elite within human society. It's the gift bestowed to all human beings. Look at the second part of verse 26 now. And let them have dominion. It's immediate. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion flows immediately out of image and likeness. You see, that's the first thing that happens because you're made in his image after his likeness. You have dominion. So the relationship is created. Then the dominion is commanded. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's probably set out in your Bible as a pronouncement that's separate from the rest of the text. That's That has meaning. By stepping out of the natural flow of the narrative, the author is stressing two particular things here in that verse about the creation of man. The creation of mankind entails both male and female, 
and mankind resembles God in some way. The, the text separates itself to reiterate that, to tell you that. By pausing here to pronounce that, the author is getting us ready for the two commands that come in the very next verse. That's the point here. Be fruitful and have dominion over. So the two genders are the basis for being fruitful, aren't they? It's not going to happen unless there are two. And then the divine image correlates to having dominion, ruling over as God's regent in verse 27. Which, by the way, in our 2019 context, verse 27 lets us know that the divine image is not telling us that God is both male and female. That's, that, that, that's what we're hearing now. That when it says, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Oh, so God is like both male and female. No, he is not. Okay, he's, he's not. The, the verse is proving that. There are two separate aspects here. They're not in isolation. They set up the two commands that immediately follow. Look at 28 through 31. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, 28 is flowing right out of the two distinctions made in 27. And God said in verse 29, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we learn the purpose for what has been created up to this point. Right? It's all for God's image on earth to be able to thrive on earth. Plants for food to survive, animals over which to rule and exercise dominion. Creation serves the purpose for which God made mankind. And for the first time, God speaks explicitly of an order within the creation. You notice that he, he gives the man that which bears his image dominion over all the earth and all its inhabitants. At the time, the animals, the produce. And for the second time, God blesses something he has created. And the blessing is the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. What's different here is that added calling not only to multiply and fill the earth, but also to the man, to mankind, to subdue it and have dominion over it. That's what God desires for his son in creation, that he would rule over it as his regent. God reveals in verses 29 and 30 that he has given to the man and all the animals, the creatures, all the produce that he has created as food. That's what it was there for. So the creatures will be sustained by the creation. And God calls this very good in verse 31. That's new. He really likes this. And that ends the sixth day. So God's creation moved towards a climax, reached its pinnacle on day six. And with the creation of man, we'll see this more fully next week, God's work is complete. God created mankind uniquely in his image and after his likeness to rule over his creation in a covenant relationship, in his image with him as a son on the earth. That was the plan for mankind. 
the fall that will come in Genesis 3 did not change the plan for mankind. It didn't alter the plan, nor did it ruin the plan. Mankind was created in God's image and likeness to rule over his creation in a covenant relationship with him as his son on the earth in order to provide a template for that plan's fulfillment to come about in none other than his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The fall serves the purpose and plan of Almighty God. Remember, the lamb foreordained to be slain from the foundation of the world in 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, the fall didn't change that. The fall set it in motion. Right? The fall was the means by which God would accomplish his plan. It's what we're reading. It's how the journey towards that moment began. Jesus would be the one who would fulfill God's purpose for creating mankind by becoming a human being. By being put in the position to be an image bearer after his likeness on earth. Remember in Hebrews 2, 6 through 9, when we're told that Psalm 8 and its reflection on mankind was ultimately a prophecy, namely, as the text says, namely about Jesus. That's why mankind exists. All things were created through him and for him. Mankind was created for Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God's plan for the creation of mankind is realized and will be fulfilled. We were made in his image and likeness because God wanted us to rule over this world as his viceroys here. God fulfills it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful human flesh to accomplish God's plan. And this plan will come to fulfillment by virtue of God's promise. Just as soon as God is done making all his enemies into a footstool for his feet, it's the one marker we get, and once the gospel has been preached to all the nations, which is not continents, it's ethne, it's ethno-linguistic people groups, right? The, the, the Bible hit all nations years ago. I mean, almost a hundred years ago, the gospel was in every nation, every right geopolitical nation on the earth. That's not what Jesus was talking about, right? It will get to every ethno-linguistic people group on the earth. Ethne is nations there. That's what it means. It will get to all the different tribes in the Amazon. God will have Revelation 5. God has bought people from every single people group on the planet. They'll all be there. His vision for a fruitful earth with his sons, his children, ruling over it in perfection will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. Jesus is the image of God par excellence, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. The rest of the Bible is the story of how God will act to accomplish his plan and his purpose for the creation of mankind as his image after his likeness. That's what it is. All by his promise. It will all be accomplished by his promise so that, so that, when we finally come to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and the second Adam speaks, why does God call him the last Adam, the second Adam? When we come to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and the second Adam speaks, 
we have a framework to understand precisely what Jesus is doing in that moment. When God in human flesh stands before a new humanity, beloved, at the beginning of a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that article shouldn't be there. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Not a new creation. He is new creation. When God in human flesh stands before this new humanity at the beginning of this new creation, after he has done what? Breathed on them to give them new life. He then gives the spiritual purpose of the commission to be fruitful and multiply. How will the gospel spread across the globe? When he says to this new family, how will we fill the earth as you are going out into this world as sons of God, make disciples of all nations? As through the gospel, the world will finally bow its knees in submission to its creator. And if they don't, they will be removed and placed into eternal punishment. Dominion will be made very difficult for us to maintain by the fall. But God already had a plan to restore everything we lost. The promise will come. The plan will be revealed. We'll see it kick off in Genesis 3:15. Full restoration of this beauty and glory will be achieved and established by Jesus Christ when he comes again and we reign with him in a new heavens and a new earth. That's Revelation 22.5. Has it ever struck you that the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a garden? An even better one. That's the trajectory of mankind. It will all return to the state of perfection and bliss, multiplied and improved even through Jesus Christ. As we close tonight, let me read something to you. I'm read something to you from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 17. This is Jesus speaking when the Sanhedrin, probably the Pharisees, sent out a group to try to trap him again. Always goes so well, so they keep doing it. Mark twelve thirteen, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Classic, manipulative, political question. These are great journalists. These Pharisees are great senators. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, oh shoot, (laughs) Jesus is so good. They just can't win. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Not because he told him to pay their taxes. Right? They, they didn't get it. He's, what is he saying to them? If somebody's likeness is on something, pay the taxes to him. They belong to him. Whose likeness and image is on you? He's saying to them. Who do you belong to? Why won't you render yourself to God? You have his image, his likeness, his inscription on you. 
That's what he's telling them. Render to God the things that are God's. You. He's not talking about dividing your money up. He said, you belong to God. Your likeness, your image, your inscription, his image is on you. You see, Jesus reaches all the way back to the creation mandate to prove that we belong to God. That the image remains. He's looking them in the eye in the midst of their rebellion, their rejection of their only Messiah, their only hope for salvation, their only hope to fulfill God's purpose for mankind. Because if you don't, you get destroyed. Right? You you, you don't fit. And saying to them, again, whose likeness and inscription are on you? Render to God what belongs to God. And beloved, mankind belongs to God. Every sin is rebellion against Genesis 1. Against the fact that we are made in his image after his likeness. We should act like we're in the family. Like we're sons. But we don't. We rebel. And we don't do what our father gave us the family business to do. We don't exercise dominion. We use the world for our own benefit. That's what sin is. Every human being that exists and has ever existed belongs to God, literally. But we fell. We failed. And we still do at every turn to serve God. Like we are his sons and exercise benevolent dominion over his creation as servant kings on the earth. The image has been marred. But beloved, the image has not been destroyed. Because there is a Savior. God sent His one and only begotten Son to accomplish what we could not. So Jesus doesn't just personally save individual people and rescue them from wrath and judgment, from hopelessness and slavery to death. Now, primarily, certainly, He does do that. Make no mistake. However, God sent Jesus to accomplish his purpose forever, even creating humanity in the first place. See, when Jesus is healing, it's it's not just making something bad right again. He's whispering to us, I am going to restore what was lost, right? I'm, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to take away all the effects of the fall. I'm going to undo all of them and bring everything back as the king, as the son of God into perfect harmony with God. That's what he's, that's part of what he's doing when he's healing, right? When he's, when he's raising the dead and all these things, he's saying, I am going to bring us back to Eden, right? It's, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. In other words, we don't ever want, it's, it's, you're starting to drift into liberalism if you take away the saving necessity of Jesus for sinners, we, we can't ever lose that. At the same time, however, there's not less than that going on. There's more than that going on. He's restoring the creation, right, for his father. That's what he's doing. God sent Jesus to bear his image as a son and exercise his rule perfectly as his likeness. That he may finally be glorified perfectly by his creation. That will come about by Jesus. God didn't lose. I, I, I saw a, um, 
a little story somebody posted about where a coach had wanted to pray before, you know, the football team's games at a high school and they wouldn't let him. But, you know, he, he fought back and finally they let him do it. And the headline says, God won. What, what a wimp. You lost. God loses. I don't know. You don't take God out of something. <laughs> right? We kicked God out of school. No, we didn't. Our feet aren't big enough. We didn't kick him out. Right? That's not what happened. God doesn't lose. Right? He's, he's not a victim of our sin. That, that's part of what the creation account is establishing here. No, your God is victorious. Your God is a man of war. He's a warrior. He's sovereign. He's king. He doesn't walk around heaven kicking stuff around. Well, they threw me out of that school and wouldn't let me back in there. And no, no, you, you can pray wherever you want. Right? At least for now. Teachers can't lead it, but you can pray if you want. We, we just decided to ride that wave of, no, we're not going to take it. Take what? The kids can still pray. Relax. Right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a, we don't fight with, we're not fighting with the world's, not with, we're not fighting with the people to gain ground or take it back. God didn't lose it. Jesus has overcome the world. He's not losing ground when something doesn't go his way. We have to stop believing this. It eats away at our confidence in our Savior. He, he won. It's, it's finished. This is all like, this is all, what, what's, what's the word? I don't know what the word is, but it's all that. Whatever I was thinking of, that, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> it, it, we don't become the sons of God by working our way back into his good graces. That's, that's not how paradise is regained. We become his sons by believing in the sufficiency of Jesus who perfectly bore his image and likeness. And when we do that, God places us in him in the new Adam and will one day draw us out just like he did with Eve in the next chapter with the first Adam. So he will draw out his church from the second. Beloved, we can't lose. We can't lose. Tonight, the calling to us from the text is to submit to the Creator. Right, we, we, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night from Psalm 46 and 47, but God created us with a certain design and purpose for us. And we try to recreate the rules. We try to recreate the structure of the game, of the field. We cannot do this. We, again, the result of it is chaos. What the Psalms make clear, what Genesis makes clear, what the Word of God makes clear all over the place is that you, He can't be thwarted. Right? If He has a purpose, it will be accomplished. That's our hope and confidence tonight. My hope in my salvation personally that, that I will endure to the end is in God's commitment to his own word. As Jeremiah says, he, he watches over his word to perform it. If I say I'm going to do something, I'll make sure it gets done. Right? He, he, it's, it's all through the Bible we learn this about our God. Don't, don't let him become, don't let the, the culture push you into thinking that God is dependent on us. To do something or not do something. That's not the way it works. So just tonight, we are called by God to bear his image and his likeness. And the only way we can do this is through and in Christ. You must believe Jesus. You must believe the gospel.
and the God who is, the God who speaks, the God who creates out of nothing will not fail you, beloved. And his word will not ever fail you. Stand, if you would, tonight. Turn to page 407 for our closing hymn. 407. I'm going to pray for us. If if you have any need to pray at all, anything that you'd like to pray about, I'll be down front. Let's pray together now. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the power of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, your word. I praise you for him. And Lord, I, I ask tonight that we would leave with hope and confidence in him to accomplish exactly what you have designed. Father, through him, we can be restored to what we were intended to be. May we trust in your sovereign power and love, and we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.